0: Let's go, Jake. Ooh, I'm already persuaded. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> that means I have very little work to do. Easy <laughs> And the topic is? Uh why swearing is bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am already persuaded. We are ready? The timer's ready? You may begin. Alright, sweet. So the ultimate question is, why is swearing bad? I feel like some of us might think that's a pretty easy question to answer, but I think it's a little bit harder than that. I mean, why is it so blatantly bad? Why is just a couple phrases of words so bad? Today, I wanna to cover just a couple things and go over why it's bad, uh, some of the history behind it, and uh, also clarifying why the Lord's name in vain. I mean, what is the difference Between using the Lord's name in vain and actually swearing. So now that we got that out of the way, we'll just dive in into some of uh, where the swearing has come from. So back in the olden days, um, some of the roots of swearing has come from um, medieval English, German, and Old French. Um, They didn't really use it that much. They kind of frowned upon it. Um, They used it in plays actually. Um, They didn't use it in Shakespeare plays, but there was a famous a uh, man named Ben Johnson who used it in his place a lot, and he was kind of famously known for that. Nobody really knows why he did it, but he did. So there's that. Uh, so Cards are sticky today. Okay, so now a really big question is what I get a lot from like little kids and stuff um, is what What is the difference between using the Lord's name in vain and actually swearing? So. Um, Profi- I mean, lost my words. Um, so, using the Lord's name in vain, um, what I have found, um, the definition for vain is useless or without meaning. So, using the Lord's name in vain is using the Lord's name without purpose or meaning. Um, and profanity is simply just obscene speech, um, is the Oxford or Harvard definition, or whatever that book is, the dictionary definition of Profanity. So now we're actually going to get into why swearing is bad. Why is it so bad that it is bad? Well, in the Bible, it says in Ephesians four five, let there be no filthy, uh, filthy talk, or foolish talk, or crude joking. So why is this joking crude? Why are these words so? What I have come to is that is simply us. We have made these words or these conglomeration of words into these bad and obscene things because of our sinful human nature. Thank you, that's all. Oh, Rachel right. handouts so for your speech. What? No. <laughs> Jude gave uh, We, we are are nice
1: <laughs> 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 What <laughs> That's me. What kind you I am giving a persuasive speech on why it is wrong for the government to redistribute
0: wealth. Okay. Nice. <laughs>
1: So we've all heard the term redistribution of wealth. Now most of the times you hear it from your local politician running for, you know, school board or something, where they want to take something from one program and give it to another less funded program. So that's really what redistribute, 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 (laughs) (laughs) the redistribution of wealth means. I'm going to be covering kind of what it means, examples of it, pros and cons in this speech today. So as for examples of redistribution of wealth, in today's society, we mostly see it in taxes, where they take taxes more from someone who's making more money and then have social programs to give it to those who have less money. Uh, We've also seen this used in the past with things like the Louisiana Purchase back in the early Americas. We've seen it used with the Homesteading Act in the early Americas, and these are actually two examples of redistribution of wealth where it actually worked. Now, we don't see that that often, but those are two where it did. Okay, so we're gonna look at the pros of redistribution of wealth. Really, there's not many, okay? But in in the past, there have been situations such as the Homesteading Act and the Louisiana Purchase, where they, where the government has used it quite well, mostly because the government was taking out of its own pockets to give to the poor. And then, you know, a few lower class people get a couple extra pennies in their pocket. Now for cons of redistribution of wealth, well, for starters, finding funding is nearly impossible because if there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's that the government doesn't like to give up their money, okay? And the only way to make redistribution of wealth possible is when the government takes the money from themselves hence why the homesteading act and the louisiana purchase worked so well with the redistribution of wealth Um, you have to if you're not taking it immediately from the government you have to take it from the people going through more progressive income taxes taking more money from those people earning more money now this is not a great way because it lessens the incentive for the rich to make more money. And when the rich aren't making more money, you can't tax the rich. So it kind of fails on itself. The other way is using regressive income tax okay, income taxes, which takes less tax away from the poor and kind of leaves it where it is for the rich. Now this is a good theory, but it doesn't really work because when you no longer tax the poor, that's a huge margin of your people in America. There are uh, 39% of people in America are considered to be lower class people. Okay, in conclusion, it's a good theory, the redistribution of wealth, but that's all it can be. It, It can only be a theory. Because without much proof that it works, and plenty of examples that it doesn't work, it's more useful as a ploy for all of those politicians to kind of bait in that 39% of lower class Americans. That's it.
2: Who else needs to go? Go ahead. What kind of speech do you- oh yeah, you
1: yeah. got it. illustrate illustrated. I'll get your PowerPoint going. The uh, clicker is up there on the podium.
3: Alright, we're ready Okay I am always doing that which I cannot do in order that I may learn how to do it This is a quote from Pablo Picasso one of the greatest artists of the 20th century and of all time Today I'll be discussing three major points in Pablo Picasso's painting career His childhood passion the blue and rose periods and other methods of painting and his effect on the world of painting Starting with my first point childhood and passion Pablo was born in Malaga, Spain, in 1881 to parents Jose Ruiz Blasco and Maria picasso Lopez. Picasso's father was a local art teacher at the local school, he, and he encouraged his son to paint and draw from a young age. Um, he wanted Picasso to become a great artist someday, but little did he know he'd become even more than that. Um, um, this is one of Picasso's first paintings on the right, and one from when he's 57 on the left. As you can see, there's quite a difference between the <laughs> two. Um, a lot of the styles changed throughout his childhood and adulthood, and so that 's why these looks so different. Um, but when Picasso was 19, he decided that he was going to leave Spain and left for Paris, France. And a lot of the paintings he started to do there looked a lot like other famous artists, or, well, like other famous artists like uh, Um Now um, now, moving on to my second main point of the blue and rose periods and other methods of painting. Uh, during this time, something, felt, or something happened that would change the course of Pablo Picasso's life forever. His best friend had died, and he felt alone and sad. At this time, none of his paintings were selling, and he was almost starving to death every night. Picasso began to paint a lot of things in blue. He made all the paint- people in his paintings look very sad and lonely. Some of the people thought Picasso's blue ca- paintings were great and new and amazing, but others, including his father, thought that they were too strange and that they would just never end up doing anything in the world of painting. Um, This is one of Pablo Picasso's most famous blue paintings right there. That's one of his most famous blue paintings. But the blue period ended when he met a girl named Fernande. Fernande and Picasso fell in love, and soon a happier color began to appear in most of Pablo Picasso's uh, paintings. Uh, This period was called the Rose Period. But when he started painting happier things, he painted a lot of things like circus and people and a lot of their animals. This is another one of his most famous paintings from the Rose Period. But then after working on the Rose Period a lot, and having spent a lot of time on that, Pablo Picasso wanted to try something that not a lot of people had done yet, and that was called Cubism. Cubism is one of the most famous styles that Pablo Picasso um, tried, and he actually was the one who pretty much made it famous. It was pretty uh, not very well known until Pablo Picasso tried to do so. Um, in this one, it is just called Cubism because it's broken into little cubes. And here, that's where it gets its name, Cubism. Um, And if you look closely, you might be able to see the man's face, or what he is wearing, his hands, or perhaps his bottle, a glass, or maybe his pet cat. Cubism is one of the most important periods in the history of modern art. For hundreds of years, artists tried to paint things that looked real. Then Picasso came along and started to paint people that didn't look how they were supposed to. Their eyes weren't where they were, and their noses were misplaced. And this was very different from the rest of the artists at the time. It was also just very shocking to people to see this. Um, uh, well, once Pablo Picasso started painting paintings like this with the eyes and nose at of place, some of his friends thought he even went too far and tried to encourage him to go back to more cubism and other rose period and blue period paintings. But Pablo Picasso just tried to do whatever he wanted and painted whatever he wanted. Um, Pablo Picasso, after using cubism for years, decided to move away from that for a little bit and tried to do other things with his painting career. It also became much easier to see what Pablo Picasso was painting, like in this painting, The Three Musicians. You can even see what they're playing in this compared to other ones where you couldn't even tell if it was a human or not. Um, and then after this, Pablo Picasso visited uh, Rome, a city in Italy, and began to paint a lot more paintings that looked like statues, such as this one. Um, after he was in Rome for a while, he also saw many tapestries. Once he saw the tapestries, he wanted to paint things bigger. Not only small paintings, but also paintings 12 to 25 feet long. This is one of Pablo Picasso's largest paintings. Um, now, moving on to my third and final point: his effect on the world of painting. The reason yeah, Pablo Picasso was so, er, sorry, um, the reason Pablo Picasso was such a great artist was his originality. He tried to do things outside of the normal that other people had already tried to do. He had imagination to try new things and different things throughout his entire life. He lived to be 92 years old and died in France in 1973. He was a great painter, but he was great at other things too. He made sceneries for plays, he made sculptures, he printed, he did drawings and beautifully colored dishes and bowls, and er, and now a lot of paintings nowadays are derived from old Picasso paintings from the blue and rose period and uh, cubism. Picasso's paintings are still expensive. The most expensive Picasso painting ever sold, sold for $170 million auction. Today, I have informed on Picasso's childhood and passion, the blue and rose periods, and other methods of painting, and his effect on the world of philosophy. So today, I challenge you to be more like Picasso and have originality and imagination in everything you do. Thank you.
2: Alright, do we have one more? Yep. What kind of speech are you doing? What? What kind of speech are you doing? I'm doing an informative speech on Wendell Berry. Oh yes. (coughs) Uh, That's not Wendell Berry up on the screen, is it? No. Hey, Macasso's a pretty cool guy. (laughs) County, Kentucky. He farms his land with draft horses and does not own a computer, and he is living a life that I myself find very desirable. Um, He lives out what he believes in regards to God, community, and family, and land, and I picked him because my family has many resources on him, but also uh, because many of his ideas correspond with those of Schaefer's. And Wendell Berry has a whole series of Mad Farmer poems. I'm going to be reading this one to you, um, which is a manifesto series, and I picked it because it represents Wendell Berry very well. It has many of his ideas that one can read in his other writings. And he speaks against personal peace and affluence, and um, man as a machine, man living as a machine. why it's bad to live against the world's standards. He also speaks for loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving creation. He is very countercultural. <clears throat> I will now read you his poem. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready, made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it, denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all that you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not yet encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such return. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to Carrion, Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nice to your thoughts. As soon as the generals and politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. In the first stanza, it appears that Wendell Barry is saying that we should do what the world wants us to. Um, uh, personal peace and affluence, but we can quickly see that he's actually demonstrating to us the results of personal peace and affluence. And that is that man will sooner or later become machine. Um, Barry believes, because he is a Christian, that man is made in the image of God. In the second stanza, he calls us to live differently. uh, To love your God, um, love someone who does not deserve it. Uh, These uh, fulfill what Jesus said are two of some of the most greatest commandments. Also to love the world, but not in the um, biblical sense of the world that most of us are, are used to, but in the world that God has created and his creation. God commanded us to be um, good caretakers of this in Eden. In the third stanza, he says to invest in the millennium. Sequoias, humus, forests. But what does that mean? It means uh, to put your time to things that you will not be immediately gratified by. Sow the seeds that you may never see to harvest of and trust in God. In the fourth stanza... It says to be in awe of something outside of ourselves, like the two inches of humus, or the carrion, um, life coming from death. Uh, we can trust God's hand, and we can be joyful, though we have considered all the facts. In the fifth stanza, Barry concludes by talking about loving the simple things that God has given us. First Thessalonians commands us, To live a quiet life, working with your hands. It also says in the fifth stanza, to practice resurrection, so that the way that we would live um, would bring life and not death. In conclusion, we can see a modern writer like Wendell Berry can uphold truth and goodness, encouraging us to love God, love our neighbor, and love and care for creation as well. Thank you.